This morning we're going to begin a study on the Gospel of Matthew. I can't tell you how long that's going to last, except that if I said it's, you know, it's going to take us at least a year or two, I'd probably be safe. Um, I like that this morning in the adult Sunday school class, Randy started a study on a Bible survey and he dealt with Genesis this morning, the first book of the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about the first book of the New Testament and you can already start uh, <clears throat> making your guesses about whether I'll get through Matthew or Randy will get through the entire Bible first. Um, just to sort of tell you how I've landed on the book of Matthew, initially I wanted to go back and preach an Old Testament book, and I think that is something that we will do soon, but I also don't want us ever to be too far away from learning from Jesus about Jesus. Learning about Jesus directly from Jesus is actually our job, according to Matthew, at the end of the book. It's to go make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. And so Matthew's gospel is a good way to accomplish both goals at once, and that it's very dedicated to the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We'll see a lot of the Old Testament. But also, it is it contains more direct teaching of the Lord Jesus from him than any other book. So my goal this morning is to introduce Matthew's gospel, show why it's worth our attention, and even maybe why I'm a little bit excited about it. Um, but let's begin by praying and asking God's blessing on the introduction today as we um, study this and as we move forward. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to be in your house. We're thankful for the way that you are our Father. You, you've brought us here. You've made us your children. You love us. Lord, you have been so good to us, and we just ask this morning that you would continue to bless us in order for us to bring glory to you. Please help us in our study of your word. Just open it to us. Use your Holy Spirit to uh, teach us and Lord, help us to uh, know Jesus better and love Jesus more and to glorify him in all that we do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As the Old Testament closed, the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon and they had rebuilt their temple. They had determined that they were never again going to fall under the thumb of some evil Gentile nation. And if, if they ever did, they were certain that the Messiah from God, whom God had promised, would, would come. And he would come as a great military leader and victoriously conquer the enemies of God. But then, after 400 years of silence between the Testaments, the New Testament opens and the Jewish people are struggling under the occupying army of the Roman Empire. Of course, what do they hope? They hope as the New Testament opens, they hope that the Messiah would come and throw off the yoke of the Romans and their oppression and their taxes, right? He's, he's going to come and he's going to save us from Rome. But not everybody had that hope within them. 
Some had lost hope. Some had so given up on the promises of God and rejected God's call to live in holy separation in this world. These wicked men had so abandoned righteousness that their greed led them to be traitors to their own country. Because the Romans were foreigners, they did not really know how to best squeeze tax money out of the Jewish people. And so they employed some wicked traitors known as publicans or simply tax collectors. And these were evil Jewish men who would would sell out their own neighbors using the Roman army to sort of strong arm their own countrymen collecting taxes for the occupying army that was the enemy. And the only pay they got for that is whatever extra they could extort out of their former friends and neighbors. And so knowing that, I want to introduce you to the writer of the gospel that we're going to study. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here's Jesus, having already started his ministry, and he's got attention, he's got crowds following him, he's got people convinced that he is that military Messiah that they've been waiting for, and that any day now, he is going to gather up the righteous people of God and form them into a mighty army to overthrow the Romans. He has already shown how fearless he is. He has walked into the temple and he has gone up to the money changers' tables and thrown the money changers' tables over. And now as these crowds follow, Jesus walks along this road near Capernaum and they watch as he goes up to a tax collector's table. You know what they're thinking. Oh, oh boy, this, this guy, Matthew, is about to get what he's got coming. But Jesus doesn't flip his table over. He looks at this hated tax collector in the face and says to him in front of everyone, come follow me and be my disciple. And as shocking as that invitation was, it's maybe more shocking that Matthew, the tax collector, obeyed the call of Jesus to be his disciple. Let me just insert here. If you you have this image in your mind of a, a effeminate weakling for Jesus, if that's how you picture him, change the way you think about him. 
That guy that you've got pictured could not go up to a bunch of fishermen and tell them to leave their boats and nets and follow him. Much less could he go up to a tax collector and say, you walk away from the tax booth and follow me. What kind of chaos erupted after Matthew left his job as a tax collector. He just walks away from the table of tax money. I don't know everything that that happened, and I don't know everything that Matthew was thinking, what was going on in his mind, but I am certain of this. He knew that if he walked away from that table, there was no going back. Y'all, the same's true for you. You don't get to try Christianity on for size. You follow Jesus like there is no going back or you're not following him at all. And so instead of going back, Matthew goes forward. He's going to be a disciple of Jesus. And just like the other disciples of Jesus, he's going to call others to believe in Jesus as well. Verse 10 describes that Matthew throws a dinner party and Jesus is the guest of honor. Now, who can a rotten traitor to his country invite to a dinner party? It's not a nice crowd. It says many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and with his disciples. Right When, when, when Matthew decides to have a party that night and opens up his cell phone to start texting out invitations, he finds out that the, the only contacts he has is a certain element of people in Capernaum. Enforcers, cheats, thieves, extortioners, drunks, prostitutes, other tax collectors, all the morally bankrupt outcasts of society. Y'all, this had to have been some fascinating dinner conversation. And the conversation outside is almost as interesting as the conversation inside. You can imagine the Pharisees in verse 11 reaching in the window and grabbing at some of Jesus' disciples and asking, why? Why is it that your rabbi is eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overhears it in verse 12 and simply answers, a doctor goes where the sick people are. He even admits this party is full of sinners in verse 13. He says, I did not come to call the righteous But I've come to call sinners to repentance. So just another thing to note here. When someone points to this kind of thing and tells you Jesus hung out with sinners, first off, understand that's true. But also understand he did not condone their sin. He told them they were sick and called them to repentance. Now, all of those righteous or really self-righteous people, those leaders who were waiting for the Messiah to gather up an army and rescue them from Rome, they're angry at this. This is not the Messiah that they wanted. But Matthew, the tax collector, includes this as part of the story to essentially say, just look at this. You want a Messiah that saves people from Rome? Well, look, he saved me from Rome. He came and he sat down with my friends, these other tax collectors, and he saves them. He calls them to repent of their sins. He calls them to a new life in him. He might not be the Messiah you want, but he's the Messiah we needed. And he's the Messiah God has promised in the Old Testament. 
how strange and wonderful that Matthew, the former tax collector, of all people, the, ones who would, the one who would have been most hated by his Jewish countrymen, is the one the Holy Spirit leads to pick up a pen and record this fantastic bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Y'all, this is part of how we can be certain of the authenticity of Scripture because it includes stuff that nobody in their right mind would just make up. I can't imagine anyone but God would pick Matthew the tax collector to write this gospel to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is their king and the promised Messiah. Well, it's a little bit like picking a disgraced politician to rewrite the Congressional Code of Ethics. <clears throat> Or picking up and reading, you know, a, a concise history of the American Revolution as written by Benedict Arnold. It is not a choice we would make. And it is a testimony to how Matthew's experience with Jesus left him so radically changed. While there is nowhere in this gospel that Matthew claims to be the writer the unanimous witness of the earliest Christians is that it did come from Matthew who was chosen from being a tax collector to be a disciple of Jesus and later named an apostle of Jesus. The writers within the first couple of hundred years of Christianity all say that this was Matthew who wrote this and they actually say that he wrote it in Hebrew to the Hebrews. Now, Let's talk about the structure that Matthew uses. Matthew has a lot to say to all of us, not just to the Jews, to people in all nations. But because he is primarily writing to a Jewish audience, he structures his gospel in a way that's designed to appeal to their manner of thinking. Matthew's gospel is not primarily told in chronological order. Now, of course... He starts with the birth of Jesus and he ends with the resurrection of Jesus. He's not messing with the order dramatically. But <clears throat> he's, he's not pretending to tell this story everything in the order that it happened. He arranges his gospel instead according to themes, according to ideas. You have to remember, none of the gospels are giving a complete biography of Jesus' life or even a comprehensive retelling of his entire ministry. They had to pick and choose what to include and what to leave out. Like the Apostle John basically said at the end of his gospel, there is not enough paper and ink on earth to tell you everything that Jesus did. Right? And so we'll talk in a moment about what Matthew includes and why. But first I want you to see kind of the the structure of the book. Like if we outlined it, what would it look like? Well, it's got 28 chapters. The first three chapters are essentially introduction. The final three chapters are essentially the conclusion. But the main part of the book, the biggest part of the book from Matthew chapter 4 all the way through Matthew chapter 25 are telling a story in five big sections. For those of you who who like to take notes or write in your Bible, get yourself ready. 
from chapter 4 through chapter 25, there are five very clear sections in Matthew. In each of these sections, Matthew starts with a narrative, right? He starts with telling a story, and then he tells, he gives a, a long record of a sermon or a message of Jesus that relates to the stories he's telling. So, we can see those very clearly because every time at the end of one of those sections, he includes kind of a, a summary statement. So let me just point these out to you. The first section is Matthew chapter 4 through Matthew chapter 7. It's all about the kingdom is at hand. John the Baptist comes saying the kingdom is at hand. Jesus comes and he's baptized and he's tempted by Satan. And he picks up John the Baptist's message that the kingdom is at hand. And then in chapter 5 through 7 of that first section, it's this big teaching block where, you know, it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. This is about life in the kingdom. Now look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see that phrase, Jesus ended these sayings. That's the way Matthew is going to consistently give us a clue that this is the end of this section. And then he picks up the story and goes on to more of Jesus' teaching before he ends the next section. So the second section is from Matthew chapter 8 through Matthew chapter 10. Chapters 8 and 9, there's lots of miracles. And in chapter 10, there is a long sermon where he sends out his disciples on a mission. And so there's a summary statement at the end, Matthew 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities, right? Again, he finished his teaching. And then it transitions back to storytelling. The third section is Matthew chapter 11 through 13. It kind of records reactions to Jesus. Matthew 11 and 12, some people believe, some people reject him. The Pharisees hate him, right? Then in Matthew 13, it records a collection of Jesus teaching in parables. And at the end of Matthew 13, verse 53, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there, right? There's that, that cue that that section's over. The fourth section, Matthew 14 through 18. It's all about what people expect from their Messiah. Jesus even asks the disciples in this section, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he goes on to teach who he really is. He's come as a servant. He's, and, and the greatest in the kingdom will be those who serve with him. Matthew 19 verse 1 ends that section. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan. The final section in the middle is chapter 19 through 25. Jesus asserts his authority. He cleanses the temple. He weeps over Jerusalem. The, the interaction with the religious leaders gets more heated. They plot to kill him. You can see that the end of this 
story of Jesus's ministry is coming. And so in chapters 23 through 25, he preaches a sermon or maybe two sermons. We'll talk about it when we get there. But chapter 23 through 25 is all dealing with the end times. In chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. He said to the disciples, you know that two days is Paso- after two days is Passover, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So I just want you to see this structure because Matthew says he's telling the story in these sections, these themes. So unless Matthew says specifically, this is what happened next, he's not necessarily telling things in chronological order. Sometimes he does say that specifically, but often he doesn't. He's telling the story in sort of these thematic movements that would have appealed to his audience. Let's talk about the way Matthew connects his gospel to the Old Testament. This is going to require some page turning. More so than any other gospel, Matthew quotes the Old Testament and explains how Jesus fulfilled it in his life and ministry. In fact, depending on how you count it, Matthew directly quotes the Old Testament about 60 times, which is more than Mark and Luke and John put together. And if you don't, if you include times where he sort of alludes to the Old Testament without quoting it, then the number goes well over 100. Okay? So I encourage you to read through Matthew's gospel. Do it over a day or two. Should, on average, take two or three hours. Uh, When you read it, pay attention to how often Matthew writes that this happened, that it would be fulfilled by the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah or... He says, all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled, or this was spoken uh, of the Lord through the prophet that it might be fulfilled. I mean, he's constantly saying that. Matthew's point is to connect the Lord Jesus to every significant promise from the Old Testament and show how he is the ultimate fulfillment of what God has promised. So I don't think it's practical to try to make all of those connections today, but I do want to make some just so you see it, some of the big ones. So look at Genesis chapter 22. Randy is always doing this to me in his Sunday school class. He finds my notes ahead of time and starts giving you little bits of it. Genesis 22. In Genesis 12, when God first calls Abraham over in Mesopotamia, he calls him to leave his country, leave his family, and he tells Abraham in in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, you will be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God restates that covenant with Abraham several times. Here in Genesis 22, Abraham has just proved his willingness to trust God so much that he would sacrifice his own son. God, of course, did not require him to go through with it. But this is what God says in Genesis 22, starting at verse 16. 
said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed, listen to this, in your seed, All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So make a note of this, or at least file it away in your mind. God promised that a seed, a distant descendant of Abraham, would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That promise to Abraham is going to be a major part of what Matthew talks about. Next, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Many, many generations later, after the rebellion of Abraham's descendants, God gave them a king after his own heart, a man named David. In 2 Samuel 7, King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but the Lord told him no, his son would build it. And an even greater son of David will someday establish an eternal rule and kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, starting at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you and your throne shall be established forever. Right, so we've got this seed of Abraham who would be a blessing to all nations. Now we've got this promised son of David who is going to rule and reign forever. These covenants, these promises that God made to his people, they were unconditional. God did not say, if you're good, then I'll bless you. He even told Abraham, this is a covenant I'm making on my own. I'm holding myself to it. Now, God does make conditional covenants. What's an example of a conditional covenant would be when he gave the law to Moses, right? Within the law of Moses, there were, here are the commands. And if you follow the commands in obedience, you will be blessed. In disobedience, you will be cursed. Right? But the covenant with Moses, which required obedience to be blessed, nobody has fulfilled it. No one has been in obedience to the law of Moses. And so instead, the people rested their hopes on the unconditional promises given to Abraham and David. How well did that go? Did it produce righteousness in the people? Well, it didn't. Look at Isaiah chapter 7. God sent the prophet Isaiah to convict the people of their sins, to convict them of their disobedience, to call them to repentance. 
And he also promised them salvation through the Messiah King that the Lord would send. Many, many promises were given through the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew, I can assure you, loves them all. Like, you know, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. But here in Isaiah 7, there is this sign promised by God. Isaiah 7, verse 14. There the the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, of course, this doesn't require that his proper name is Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. And so there is this child that is promised who will be born of a virgin and he will be known as God with us. (coughs) Okay, one more in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. The prophet Jeremiah, the people still are not obedient to God's command or dedicated to his promises, so when their enemy comes from Babylon... God sends the prophet Jeremiah with a message. And when Jeremiah sees the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the people to the Babylonian captivity, you know what Jeremiah would have thought about the covenants that God had made, right? All those promises that we just read, it would have looked like, you know, God was no longer going to give Abraham's descendants the promised land. It would have looked like the people were entirely unwilling and unable to obey the law of Moses, the, the throne of David looks like it's about to be permanently cut off. And in those darkest of days, God promises through Jeremiah what he calls a new covenant. Not just a covenant with Abraham or a covenant with David. It's a new covenant. Start at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Right? So here is this new covenant. Sometime in the future to Jeremiah, A covenant unlike the covenant that God had made with Moses, he says in verse 32, which they broke. This covenant is going to be completed when God changes hearts in verse 33, when he forgives sins in verse 34. This new covenant is is different. Now there's a lot of other places we could go in the Old Testament. and I, I just wanted to pick these, but let's recap this for a moment. The covenant with Abraham was that through a seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The covenant with David was that a son of David 
would sit on the throne and would rule and reign forever. The promised sign to Isaiah was that a virgin would conceive a child known as Emmanuel, known as God with us. The covenant with Moses, where obedience to the law ensures God's blessing and disobedience ensures God's curse. That's going to come in in Matthew. And now a new covenant where God changes hearts and forgives sin. Okay, that, that's a lot, right? It's a lot to keep track of. But go back to Matthew and look at how Matthew weaves these into the gospel story of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Y'all, that is a pretty big claim to start off your book with, that one sentence. This promise of God to Abraham that in him would all the nations be blessed and the promise to David that there would be a, a king, a son of David who would rule and reign forever. Matthew opens his gospel by saying, I'm going to prove to you That Jesus is the Messiah. He is that son of David. He is that seed of Abraham. And then he gives a genealogy to prove that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. That goes through verse 17. Then verses 18 through 21, Matthew starts to record the birth of Jesus, that the angelic promise of that miraculous birth. He's even going to insert in verse 20 that Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, is also a, quote, son of David. And Joseph is told that Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah King, and Joseph will name him Jesus. Yeshua is that name. Yahweh is salvation. Because, look at verse 22, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall, conceive, shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Jesus is the seed of Abraham who will bless all nations. He's the son of David who will rule as king forever. He is the fulfillment of that promise to Isaiah. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But what about Moses? Well, that's where Matthew gets really clever. I want you to think about this for a moment. Moses' story, Moses' story began in Egypt, right? He was born in Egypt. And as he led the people out of Egypt, they left Egypt going through the Red Sea. They went to the base of a mountain where Moses received the law of God. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years being tested, right? Well, Matthew starts unfolding the story of Jesus, right? And and there's a reason why Matthew does it the way he does. Jesus is born at the end of chapter 1. In chapter 2, verse 13, the threats of King Herod make the young family run from the promised land to Egypt, 
of all places. And when the story ends there and, and the Lord comes out of Egypt, the next story that Matthew tells is about him being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And then he goes into a wilderness for 40 days where he is tested in the wilderness. And then in Matthew chapter 5, he is on a mountain and he is giving the commands to the people. And part of the commands that come in that Sermon on the Mountain is in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. Don't think that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And so how is the law fulfilled? Not by you and me. How is the blessing of obedience going to come? It's through Jesus. He came to fulfill and to bring that blessing of obedience to us. He's the fulfillment of the law and in all of human history, he's the only one who's kept the law. So Jesus is the son of Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. He's the son of David who's going to rule and reign forever. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He's the greater Moses, the the only one with the authority to both give the law and fulfill the law. And so all the covenants find their fulfillment in Jesus. But there's one that we read earlier that we haven't looked at yet. The new covenant. Look at Matthew chapter 26. The new covenant. Remember, God promised to Jeremiah that God would give this new covenant in which he would make the people his because he would forgive sins. He would change their hearts. Well, in Matthew 26, the Lord Jesus has taught his disciples that he would be betrayed and arrested and suffer and die. And they didn't really quite understand it yet, but he's preparing them anyway. They've gathered in Jerusalem in an upper room to observe the Passover. And as we talked about last week, Jesus used that to institute a new supper, the Lord's Supper. He's about to suffer and shed his blood on the cross. And this is what he says in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Right? The new covenant that Jesus is talking about here is not new in the sense that he's just made it up. It's new in the sense of God had promised to Jeremiah a new covenant in which he would change hearts and he would forgive sins. And Jesus is telling them, I'm about to go to the cross and shed my blood. And that is the fulfillment of the new covenant. This is how hearts will change. This is how sins will be forgiven. Okay, y'all, just one more thing. Matthew 28. Sometimes I think we miss that Matthew ends where he began, right? In Matthew 27, he records the crucifixion of Jesus. 
including, by the way, that sarcastic sign. This is king of the Jews. Well, it really is. He's buried, but in Matthew 28, the disciples come and they find the tomb empty because he's risen. He appears to many disciples. And Matthew concludes in verses 18 through 22 with what we call the Great Commission. I just want to read that for you again. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So think about how Matthew starts his gospel all the way back in chapter 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He begins by saying, I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is the son of David who will rule and reign eternally. And he ends with Jesus claiming, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. He is that king. He begins with the promise to prove that Jesus is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed. And he ends with the command of Jesus saying, since all authority is given to me, you go and teach all nations, right? Take the gospel to all nations. That's how they will be blessed. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that covenant with Abraham. He begins in chapter 1 by telling us Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Isaiah of Emmanuel, of God with us. And he ends with Jesus telling his disciples, Lo, I am with you always. So God with us was not just about the birth of Jesus. The God with us is still with us, Matthew says. He's going to continue to be with us. Listen, my, my prayer is this study of Matthew is going to be a blessing to you and to me and to the church as a whole. I would encourage you to read through Matthew's gospel. Pay attention to the story he's telling and how he's telling it. And even though it's going to take a long time to work through it all, try as best you can to keep all those things connected in your mind because this is a study where you are going to get out of it only what you put into it. But it is worth the effort because in Matthew, we get to learn about Jesus from Jesus. And that's just the greatest thing.